Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us. Uh, If you are new with us today, I would encourage you to check out apologetics.org, our website and headquarters, if you will, and you will find some very cool stuff there uh, in the world of apologetics. Dr. Woodward, how are you today? Well, I'm celebrating the springtime. I'm celebrating this weekend the big DNA Day. Of course, April 25th is celebrated by DNA fans every year globally as the day when the discovery was published in the journal Nature uh, just, uh, well, 70 or so years ago, and almost 70, because it was 1953. I was three years old at the time. wasn't paying much attention to the science headlines. Yeah, so, and to my understanding, you've actually sat in the actual the seat where they announced uh, the discovery, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, that's right. It was at uh, a certain pub in Cambridge. Uh, it was uh, Eagle Pub, to be exact, and it just sits across from the most famous college chapel in the world, practically. It's the um, King's College Trinity Chapel there, and um, it's just a gl- glorious spot there in the pub where they have this bronze plaque where Watson and Crick, who had just figured out, and that was actually in February when they made their announcement. They said, today we want to announce the discovery of the secret of life, and it actually has it on the plaque there in the bench seat where they sat. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, everybody comes over and and poses. So if you try to sit there, people are asking you to move away so that they can take a picture. So most people (laughs) don't sit there. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a lot of really cool, between that and uh, C.S. Lewis and the Inklings and everything, a lot of cool stuff happened in English pubs, apparently. (laughs) There you go, you know, about Oxford and Cambridge. And of course, Lewis taught both at Oxford for about 30 years, and then he was lured away by Cambridge because Oxford would never give him a full professorship. Shame on them, so good for Cambridge for offering the full professorship. He had a blast at Cambridge the last seven years of his teaching career. But I'm so excited today that we're talking about uh, the scholarship that is available for all of us in the areas of both classic sources and cutting-edge, modern, the newest, the most exciting uh, stuff that's coming out. So I think that you kind of revel in both of those, don't you, Nick? I mean, you love, you like to collect both the classic, you know, the great stuff of the past and also the new powerful stuff that's being published. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see that the the newer stuff, a lot of times they're referencing the older arguments and sometimes changing them a little or making them uh, more clear. So, I mean, I really think they're both necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes a classic book will be republished and then become cutting edge again. I'm I'm looking here on my desk here at uh, the um, Trinity College campus. And Michael Denton, who authored in 1985 and 86, uh, published in England first, then in America, the classic volume that was the the bombshell, the A-bomb, or maybe we should call it H-bomb, that really blasted holes throughout the, the credibility of Darwinian theory. And he was not a theist. He was not a Christian. He had no time for Genesis explanations. He just said the evolutionary, macro-evolutionary explanation of Darwin is now uh, in, in tattered shreds, 
nothing left of it because the micro theory, while solid, cannot be extrapolated or expanded or extended out to the the, the macro, the origin of new species. Well, that that very book, Evolution of Theory and Crisis, was republished as a kind of a new cutting edge volume uh, in the year 2016, and that was evolution still a theory in crisis. So I think it's kind of almost humorous how, you know, some 30 years later, the same author, and now in his um, late 60s, early 70s, is bringing the same arguments, but adding new data, new uh, sidelines, and, and new uh, insights. And so he makes the classic a cutting edge. And um, so I'd like to launch in that direction, and, and I don't know if we have an appreciation of how rich a mother load, I mean like a mountain of gold that we're, that we're camped on or that we're sitting on as Christian apologists. And let me just begin by mentioning one classic volume that you can collect as a used book if uh, anybody out there enjoys grabbing a good deal on Amazon or your other you know, favorite book source on the internet. And I'm holding in my hand the book that was required reading at our college for about 20 years. It was published in the late 40s by a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Uh, he was teaching there at the time. He taught later on at seminaries, uh, including Trinity Divinity School. But Wilbur Smith is a true scholar of scholars, uh, and he actually has, has worked in the area of theology as well as New Testament. But he was one of the great scholars of the past generation. I actually knew um, a student who got to know him at Trinity Divinity School, and he said he would see Dr. Smith, his professor, with a book under his arm, and the, the, the marking, you know, the page uh, marker would be at the beginning of the book, at the early part of the day, it would be in the middle of the book, at lunch, and it would be at the end of the book if he saw him right before dinner. So he would average polishing off one book per day if he was tackling a new book. I can't manage that. And Nick, I don't think you and you and I can even imagine um, a voracious, almost ferocious scholar. But he shows it in this book, and the name of it is Therefore Stand. So if anybody's taking note, uh, this will be on the midterm. Therefore Stand is a true classic. And it's an underappreciated classic because in this book, he not only gives great arguments for the Christian faith, uh, from the resurrection, arguments for creation. But he, in the opening chapters, he actually gives a step-by-step, -step, almost like a guy commenting on a Super Bowl match. He's giving a step-by-step -step commentary on how Christianity was, by the academic you know, elites, what was moved to the, from the category of the foundation of all thought to something that merely has some poetical meaning, uh, some maybe theological or emotional relevance, but nothing solid or historical or scientific that, that it pertains to it. And, and I'm looking at just the table of contents. Um, Wilbur Smith's book, which I have referred to throughout my teaching career, most people have never heard of it, therefore stand. And, it, and the opening says, uh, or is entitled, The Forces and Agencies Engaged in the Modern Attack Upon Evangelical Christianity. 
and he spends literally, this is a little bit of a long chapter, a hundred pages reviewing scholar after scholar, <clears throat> seminary after seminary, you know, school of thought after school of thought, which has turned from supporting the classic creedal, what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity, and basically turned against it, ferociously turned on it to try to um, transform it into something that is unrecognizable to a, a person who accepts at face value the teachings of Christ and the totality of the biblical revelation. Uh, he adds then, as a, as a continuing um, part two, his next chapter is the continuing retreat of evangelical Protestantism. So then he turns the focus to see what evangelical Protestants themselves have done as they've retreated from engaging in this battle in the academic world to pulling back and just having, let's say, their own little um, discussions among themselves and not really presenting the case in the secular uh, arena around them at large. And then he, in the third chapter and fourth chapter, he, he adds some reasons for the unbelief of men and their antagonism to God. He analyzes the reasons uh, for unbelief. And then he talks in a brief chapter, Roman, Roman number four, the pessimism of contemporary skeptics. We sometimes forget how pessimistic skeptical uh, people can be. And that's almost an indicator, like a divine sign of, hmm, this doesn't square with reality. It doesn't square with what we sense, not only in the biblical revelation, but in our hearts as to God's ultimate purpose is to redeem. It's to resurrect. It's to restore. It's to bring a better thing than what was even there at the beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve unfallen. Uh, and then he goes on. Uh, he talks about the creation of the world by God. He talks about Paul's address to the Athenian philosophers, an entire beautiful short chapter just on Acts 17. And then, of course, a very important um, chapter, about 80 pages long, on the resurrection of Christ from the dead, which is so appropriate. It's so powerful. It's like a, a precursor of the work of Gary Habermas. So I'm going to put near the top of my list, or at least for um, my candidates for the gold medal for the great 20th century classic book on Systematic Apologetics is by Wilbur Smith. Uh, we'll just mention again that he, he did teach at the great seminary in Chicago area, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the name of his book is Therefore Stand. And let me just mention, while we're talking about an analysis of the slide away from classic evangelical or creedal Christianity into something completely different, but still something that holds the label, something that retains the shell, the outside, you know, you might say, um, plaque on the front door of we are Christians, and that is the uh, analysis of liberalism, theological liberalism, by J. Gresham Machen. And so, uh, and at this point, uh, Nick, I might just ask you, uh, Machen is not a household word, but I don't know if you have uh, come across anything of the story of what happened uh, when Machen was teaching at Princeton Seminary when it was still solidly evangelical. Have you, have you heard this story? Um, is he the guy who was teaching against the resurrection? 
Well, actually, uh, this is the guy. Um, th there are many who were uh, in the realm of, 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 let's say, liberalism in competition or opposition mm -hmm. to evangelicalism who were teaching against the, the resurrection. Actually, J. Gresham Machen is the guy, is the good guy. He's, he's in the white hat. So, okay, so I'm, I'm so, thinking of someone else. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must be thinking of uh, maybe who probably his last name sounds similar. But Christianity and Liberalism was published in 1923. I'm reading it with my students right now in our Contemporary Issues class. And you say, why are you reading a book printed in 1923, nearly 100 years ago, in a class called Contemporary Issues? Well, we're studying the theological foundations of thought and how things, the more they change, the more they don't change. In other words, the attack on orthodoxy, the attack on, again, mere Christianity, the Christianity that is shared, quite frankly, between conservative creedal Protestants and conservative creedal Catholics and conservative creedal Orthodox, whether they be Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, whatever Orthodox. So those three branches of Christendom, that still hold to the bodily resurrection of Christ, the second coming, his full deity and full humanity, the work on the cross that atones and uh, salvation and justification by faith alone. I know there's some major discussions between those three branches on how we understand that, but uh, as a, an evangelical or conservative Protestant myself, I look upon the work of Machen as the single most important analysis of what happened when liberalism came in and began to eat up and take over Christianity at the level of the seminaries, and then it moved right into the to, from the pulpit to the pew. It became a tidal wave, a tsunami that swept starting in the late 1800s and then by 1923 when this book was written it had reached the crest so that literally six years after this book was published in 1929 the same year the stock market crashed and the Great Dep Depression began there was another crash and that was the crash of Princeton Seminary Yes, Princeton Seminary was faithful to the creeds, it was faithful to the truth, it taught evangelical Protestant truth, of course, from the Presbyterian and Calvinist uh, point of view, but it was not uh, questioning any of the, the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. And Machen was part of the key pillars that maintained that. So when they literally voted to become under the control of the, of the Presbyterian denomination in 1929, which means that they could say who was hired and fired at that seminary, Machen saw the handwriting on the wall, and he resigned, along with Cornelius Van Til, uh, Robert Dick Wilson, an Old Testament scholar, and a couple other people, and they moved into an area of Philadelphia called, I believe it's Chestnut Hill on the west side, and they founded a great new seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary, which today is thriving, it's doing well, and it is the successor of the old Princeton Seminary. It's quite an interesting story in Machen's life, but he himself, when he went to Germany to study for his doctorate, he was wavering. He felt uh, enticed by these doctrinal teachers who were flirting with these new ideas and how we can have a new, you know, more free, more 
open and more scientific understanding of Christianity, that we don't have to retain uh, all these doctrinal details. We can just uh, go with the, the truth, the central truth of love. That's what Christianity is all about. Well, when you dismiss the truth of who God is and the sin issue and the, who Christ claimed to be and what he did through the, the core of the gospel, the death for sinners and the resurrection that explodes death, that triumphs over death and, and annihilates death, if we trust in Christ. I mean, if unless you understand that truth, you've slid into not just a kind of a revised Christianity, you've slid into a new religion, which is uh, falsely claiming to be Christian. And that's what uh, Machen himself struggled with when he was in his doctoral studies. And his mom from their, the home, I think he was from Baltimore, wrote him long letters uh, pleading with him, arguing with him, saying, you need to consider this. You need to think about that. You need to read and, and research this scripture and, and, and realize that what you're hearing in your classes is not the whole truth and is really you know, pulling you away from the truth. And so he literally listened to his mom and these incredible letters, and he made it all the way through that doctoral program, did not yield to the seductive you know, invitation to grab a hold of liberalism, came back to Princeton uh, Seminary, was hired to teach Greek, became one of the great Greek scholars of that era around 1905. And then by the 1920s, as the, the rising tide of liberalism was sweeping through the Presbyterian denomination, Machen decided to take a stand and took put pen to paper and then produced this amazing book, Christianity, and liberalism. I'll say the title one more time, Christianity and Liberalism. And since we're talking about classics, I think this should be awarded the slot as a finalist uh, for the top five uh, most important book on the theology issues in apologetics related to the solid historic truth of Christianity versus this um, hardly recognizable you know, drastically revised so that the gut is really gone and only a shell remains. Christianity and liberalism is, I think, mandatory reading for anyone who is dealing with perhaps a church that may have a title, denominational name, as being Christian, but whose uh, pastoral or pastoral staff or pastors uh, seem to have thrown aside or jettisoned the classics of the faith. And so I would uh, nominate that as a classic. Now, when you compare classic with cutting edge, cutting edge today sometimes is really kept tabs on through the Internet. And many, many times we have referenced how anybody can keep up with the new cutting edge science information that is relevant. And I do want to just do a quick nod to evolutionnews.org. Thank you, Discovery Institute, for maintaining that amazing website, evolutionnews.org. And also the other uh, website, which is a little bit more specific, oriented toward um, maybe a straightforward reading of Genesis, which is where I am, with, uh, which is where I am. and that is crev.info, C-R-E-V dot info so cr from creation ev from evolution 
So crev.info is mandatory uh, watching and reading. For anybody who wants to keep up with great news articles and summaries, even just summarizing the, the other side and what they're saying and their editorializing, uh, it can be a, a bit really kind of humorous, uh, almost uh, snarky at times. Uh, the author of these, most of the postings, has a real um, sharp wit, and so you may find yourself laughing as well as learning. But those two websites are the cutting edge, um, and and it's it's not out of the ballpark to see a lot of the cutting edge writing that we're we're receiving today becoming classics over a period of 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, just think of it. When Christianity and Liberalism was published back in the 1920s, it was so powerful that even the secular uh, commentator, Walter Lippmann, I mean, he was no, you know, dyed-in-the-wool conservative Christian. He wrote in an essay that is um, really a very, very important part of his own writing. Walter Lippmann wrote uh, Machen's book. It is an admirable book for its acumen, for its saliency, for its wit. This cool and stringent defense of Orthodox Protestantism is, I think, the best popular argument produced. We shall do well to listen to Dr. Machen. And here is a major cultural commentator directing people back in the 20s to Christianity and liberalism by Machen. Well, Machen was cutting edge, but now he has become classic. He was classic, I would say, within 20 or 30 years after that, but after 100 years nearly, uh, it is a, a shimmering, shining beacon um, with uh, laser beams shooting out from it, that kind of classic. Michael Denton's book, Critiquing Evolution, Evolution of Theory and Crisis, of course, was rewritten, as I mentioned, but it is, uh, was cutting edge back in 85, 86, and now it's a classic. Think of all the works of C.S. Lewis. Think of if you were alive in 1943, 44, 45, when the pieces were being published separately that later became mere Christianity, how exciting that would be. It was like cutting edge back then. <laughs> Within 10 years, it had been put together, I think, by 1952 as mere Christianity. And, and the rest is history, as they say, because ever since, people have been reading it and been finding faith in Christ. Um, and, and I mentioned, of course, in the mid late 40s, Wilbur Smith penned this massive blockbuster, Therefore Stand. It was cutting edge in the late 40s. It was required reading at our college, 1950 through about 1975. It was the textbook in our apologetics course. It was cutting edge. And now it's become a classic. And I'll just mention, you know, as we close, I think that we have seen in recent days another classic, and that is the classic on the truth of creation put together by Doug Axe. And that just came out a few years ago, less than, I think, about five years ago. And, of course, Undeniable is undeniably a cutting-edge books, one of the most important cutting-edge books of this generation but it has the amazing argument that even kids, even children, even elementary students can perceive correctly uh, just down deep in their mental um, abilities. They can perceive creation design, and they know it's true. And now, in front of our eyes, Undeniable by Doug Axe, 
is becoming rapidly a classic. So um, whether we're looking for um, new stuff, the cutting edge, or musing through the dust-covered shelves and rummaging through the classics, they're both powerful because they're, they're rooted in Christ, and Christ is the key to apologetics. He loved us. He died for us. If we trust him, we'll be with him forever. Back to you, Nick Shalina. Thank you so much. Amen. And if you have any questions about anything that we had talked about, uh, feel free to send an email to information at apologetics.org. That is information at apologetics.org, and we will get back to you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida, and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts. Go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.